Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we cut into a different slice of wellness to examine how our values and resilience nourish our daily lives. With the help of special guests and our own brand of irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of each of our wellness pies. We're your hosts, Dina Searden and Samaya Ding Lawson. Thanks for joining us. Now let's grab a cup of tea, sit back, relax, and join this week's discussion at the Wellness Pie Shop. Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop. This week, I'm really excited. We have Samaya Ding Lawson and we have Stan Mayer. Stan Mayer is a playwright who lives in the high desert in Southern California. Stan is a veteran who served for 15 years in both Iraq and Afghanistan as a Marine infantryman and a clandestine intelligence officer. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Should we be scared of you? (laughs) No, not at all. I'm uh, essentially defanged and declawed and and mostly harmless. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly harmless. Okay. Well, welcome. I'm so glad that you're with us today, Stan. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being here too. I always uh, kind of sit in the background and when people ask me questions or ask me to, you know, kind of chime in, I'm always happy to do that because I know that I have a different perspective, especially when we're talking about like values or something like that, having done what I've done. I appreciate that, especially when it comes to values, right? Because having been in the military and now being back in civilian life, how long have you been out of the military now? I I resigned from the Defense Intelligence Agency in late 2014. So it's it's been about seven years, which is so far just enough offset from when I was going in and out of Afghanistan and doing my brand of work, which was its own particular ethical quandary. Just enough time has passed that I'm able to kind of look at it and and uh I don't know, With there's distance there, so I can kind of metabolize it differently than maybe how frenetic I was when I first got out. Yeah, I can only imagine. And that's one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show, because you bring a real uh, different quality. You've had, obviously, being in Afghanistan, being in Iraq, that life there is, you know, 180 degree opposite of I'm sure the life you're spending in the Southern California desert versus the Mideastern desert, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, essentially I departed from, you know, the life of a, an intelligence officer and a former, you know, infantryman in the Marines, uh, and I four tours in Afghanistan, a tour in Iraq. And yeah, I've been wounded in combat and I spent, you know, two and a half years in the hospital after getting hit by a suicide bomber. And, you know, there's, there's a million stories in there, but I, uh, as I was, mulling over whether I would stay in the agency, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine, I started seeing her and she was an artist and I always had identified as an artist, but I had slipped so far away from that going into that line of work that she kind of started asking me questions about whether I was happy or if I was doing what I thought I meant to do. And, you know, part of me was looking at it and saying like, well, I'm a spy, you know, the nine-year-old version of me is giving me a high five right now. I ride around in helicopters with Navy SEALs and Green Berets and, you know, hunt terrorists. But the other part of me was saying like, no, this is crazy. So that gear shift was me from me going to being, you know, uh, a G-man with the government into being an artist. And my social group also changed a lot. And that kind of value set was night and day in a lot of ways. 
and and leaving the agency when I resigned and telling people that I was an artist was kind of like coming out, you know, like people were like, wait, what? It was, it was like a secret. Yeah. It's so foreign. I imagine for that kind of, I'm not even sure what the word I'm trying to use. Um, so Maya helped me out here. She's my interpreter. It's just, a, it's foreign. I'm sorry. I'm just really yeah. not thinking well yet. And I've had already three cups of tea, but uh, so, no, I understand. Yeah. So t- just tell me, talk a little bit about when you went into the military, there was a reason for that. You enlisted on your own. Obviously it's an all volunteer yeah. military now. Yeah. And how did you get in? How did you get into that? Like what made you decide to go into the military? <laughs> this is going to sound cute, but it's a hundred percent true. Um, I didn't have anywhere to sit at lunch. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, my parents moved. Uh, we, I, I was going to this like very, um, like archetypal Norman Rockwell painting American high school in the suburbs of Cleveland, right? Looked like mm-hmm. Rydell High from Greece. You know, it was that kind of place. I knew all those people since I was in kindergarten. And my senior year, right before my parents moved out to the country, and they said, hey, you know, you want to stay here and live with one of your friends. You can finish it off with school. We'd understand that. And that's cool. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you can live out in the woods with us. And I'm like, that sounds cool. So I moved with them. And I didn't these do your, the math. your parents that you're talking about. Your parents yeah. wanted to move out into the woods. Okay, just clarify. Well, they did. They they bought a house out in uh, you know out in the wilderness in Ohio. They kind of invited me as an adult at that point to either choose to stay in the town that I grew up in and finish mm-hmm. off my senior year or, or to move with them. But I thought that was cool, um, and I wanted a new experience, so I went there. And I hadn't done the math, um, like the social math yet, until the first day of school, and I came out of the line at the at the cafeteria with my tray and I see this, you know, whole um, gymnasium full of students that all have their friend groups and their tables. And I'm not that shy, but I also don't like to like horn in or just like insert myself. So I kind of, that moment was like, damn, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to sit now. And I have this tray in my hands and I saw a recruiter in the corner and I was like, well, that guy's got to talk to me. Shut up. Three days later I was in the Marine Corps. I mean, I, I didn't wow. ship off, but I had signed the papers, you know? What a story. Oh my God. That and is, that was, um, that is the craziest Clinton. story I've ever heard. Yeah. And that, that was the Clinton era. So the stakes were a lot lower in my mind. I thought that, you know, that sounds like an adventure. I'll get a uniform. I'll learn how to shoot guns and march around that, you know, whatever, but there was no nine 11. Right. The last war we fought was like 72 hours long. The, the air force did their thing and everyone kind of sat around and learned how to play spades. But that, you know, that whole thing changed real quick for me. You know, I went to boot camp and then two years later, 9-11 happened. And mm. that was, uh, that wow. kind of changed the, the direction and course of my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'm going to ask you kind of to break this out into two distinct mm-hmm. sections, because it sounds like you've had two really different lives. There's the civilian life. And then there's this 15 years in the military where you served and did things that I'm sure none of us can even imagine. So growing up, do, can you identify some of the values that were associated with sort of your formative years? Yeah. I mean, the, the, like a, the good Midwestern American 
you know, zeitgeist that influences everyone, you know, the, the nuclear family, the, all those like real conservative values are, were the status quo. And you really didn't deviate from that at all without repercussion, you know, being labeled a, you know, eccentric or a freak or something like that. And like, so if you were to sort of, sorry, if you were sort of describe those conservative values, like what would those be? Just a few of them. Yeah. I mean, I grew up, uh, in, in like an, a, at least 99.9% all white community in the Midwest, in Ohio. I, the only people that kind of felt like outside of what was normal there where I grew up were like my mom's hairdressers for two gay men in like East Cleveland that we'd go see, you know? And that was normal to me as long as I was there in East Cleveland, but where I was living, there was no, nobody um, was gay. No, there were, there, nobody was, there was no color whatsoever in the community. Um, everyone, you know, man and woman, two kids, picket fence, you know, family car, church on Sunday, those kind of things. Um, you get, you know, expelled from school or suspended because you skipped skateboard with your friends. And that was like egregious, like you have just like dishonored the, the family, you know, and these kind of, you know, it was the Norman Rockwell painting and, you know, and there I was as an altar boy at Catholic mass every Sunday from when I was like nine years old, all the way until I was 17 when I left to go to a new town. Wow. Yeah. Which was, you know, hard for, you know, a boy, young boy going through puberty, like at a certain point you have to stop being an altar boy when you're like undressing the congregation, you know, like (laughs) your friends, good looking mom. You're like, all right, I have to get (laughs) off the altar now. Like I can't be up here. There's no way. Oh yeah this isn't so wholesome after all <laughs> so you yeah. literally mean conservative values all white community straight there are no gay and lesbians you know church on sunday you're the classic altar boy it's doesn't yeah any well, more straight lace than that well th- that i that i knew of um you know now that we're all adults most of my friends and it's it's interesting that like my friend group from growing up in high school, everyone that presented as like normative in all the ways, religiously, ethically, family-wise, uh, normative of just to me that at, when I was younger, meant white, you know, because that's what everything looked like. Those friends of mine, I'd say 25% of them growing up are, are in some way, shape or form queer uh, and definitely not conservative. Uh, it's it's really interesting to see how people have uh, dissipated from that area, and oddly enough, or I guess it's not odd at all, we should all expect it to be this way. The people who have stayed definitely still maintain those same um, kind of barricaded values. Interesting that you so. call them barricaded, barricaded values. Why why do you call them barricaded values? Out of curiosity. Well, to me, these the, that environment that america that i grew up in to me is like a stronghold and you see this a lot in the news now like people all you have to do is get one person to go on a talking head to say something like you know we need a wall up because otherwise the you know these brown people are going to come over they're going to start raping everybody they're going to steal your jobs they're going to and all and all these people inside that stronghold freak out because they're worried that their walls aren't big enough you know and uh and literally and they're nervous that this might somehow undermine or interrupt that those values the status quo 
Yeah, but but at the same time, you know, I go home and I talk to these people. I'm like, when's the last time that you've seen a Mexican outside of the restaurant that you get your burritos from? And have you had a burrito ever in your life? And do you know what guacamole right. is? I mean, the first right. time I saw an avocado, I think I was 16, you know. That's just sad. <laughs> yeah, it's different than California, let me tell you. You know, I, I find it so interesting because in the America that I grew up in, right, it wasn't necessarily the Midwest. It was a lot in California, but, you know, we lived in Minnesota and in Utah and, you know, we appeared to be the traditional family, mom, dad, four, four little girls. And it feels it's, it's these values. And I'm putting that in quotations because it's hard to really identify exactly what those are. What does that mean? What did I, I I've said the reason that this podcast was created is because I never looked at my values until I was like 57 years old. Mm. And whatever I grew up with wasn't, wasn't a value for me. It wasn't something that I said, Oh, this is really important to me. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is the foundation of who I actually am. And so it feels to me, and I could be completely off, but it feels to me, like though that's a facade that people don't really identify with anything other than what they've been told. And I can't see that actually being a value. And I could be again, you know, but what are your thoughts about that? Well, Dina, I think that's exactly right. I think that asking people to uh, reevaluate their values, their principles is a lot for a lot of people to handle. We're not talking about a society that really is, energetic about uh going deep or like or, or like questioning the way mm -hmm. they're they react to things or what those reactions are and and even just to propose a new way of thinking you'll get a hard no before you even get somebody to say like well i might not change my mind but i'd like to know what this other this other thing is and maybe i maybe that will make my own values more reinforced or or feel more solid within me even if there isn't a change of heart I was just watching a video. It looked like any of the old timers that I grew up around, uh, you know, man, you know, creases in his khakis, nice shoes, leather jacket, veteran hat on, I think World War II, maybe Korea. And he, the interviewer wasn't even politically slanted as like a liberal or a conservative interviewer, but he, he had asked this, this man about um, critical race theory being taught in schools. And, they, and the guy mm -hmm. said, I'm not, I'm not for it. I don't like it. I don't want it. And he said, what is it about? that that um that you're not interested in, in having taught he said well i don't know enough about it to really speak or, or have an opinion but i, I just don't i don't think mm -hmm. that we should have it and i think that I, i've been thinking a lot about that recently ever since i saw it and i've had a lot of conversations with my friends about it too because i'm perplexed and like what about that um threatened his belief system or his um his relationship to his community or society or the, the country that he fought for, whatever, you know, he's got his veteran hat on. And so obviously it, it means something to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't say anything more than like, I'm perplexed by that, um, that kind of moral laziness. And that is something that we're encountering a lot lately. And we we're seeing a, a lot of moral laziness. And I think that you have to, you have to do a lot of, you have to be very flexible and you have to put yourself in uncomfortable environments or environments that are unfamiliar. 
to really gain uh, an understanding, even if you are, you know, woke or whatever you want to say, like, I'm, I'm sensitive to this, I'm woke. I, I know, you know, that these are the issues. And I felt that way about myself regarding, you know, the, the community of, of color until I got asked to be in a uh, theater production where it was an all black production in uh, a play that was written by a, uh, an amazing playwright that happens to be a, a queer black woman um, directed by a queer black man with a, you know the, this production team, everybody in the whole cast said they needed a white cop. And the play was a very surreal and nightmarish version of, of like a George Floyd situation. And this is a year before George Floyd happened. And I felt that it was important. I needed to go in there and do this role and do it well to help tell this story. And it wasn't until I was sitting in a theater with this all black cast and them mulling over the things that were happening in that play every day and talking about how it was affecting them and what was happening outside to them. And again, a year before George Floyd, a year before the Black Lives Matter protests and you know marches and everything, and I felt like I was drinking from the fire hose. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, my wokeness is bullshit. Um, mm. as, as a guy who feels safe no matter where he's standing, anywhere. Mm. There's not one square inch of America that I don't feel safe in. And that's because I'm a white male. It might also be because I'm 6'4", and you know, I'm a killer of men, and I've been through all these terrible scenarios, so I don't really feel shook by a lot of things. But some of those guys that I acted with on that stage were big, tall, strapping young men too, but they have a, a different kind of relationship with where they are safe and where they are not safe. And it's really not everywhere like it is for me. So anyway, I, I learned a lot from that, regardless of how much I believed I was empathetic to it before. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also, you know, I had to create tears in my own ethical and moral fabric and comfort zone by playing this, you know, terrible cop, you know, uh, and, and then that put me in a lot of discomfort throughout that play. And I think that through that discomfort, I was able to learn how to be a better human and my values changed even then, you know, my bullshit wokeness turned into a, uh, uh, maybe had a little currency behind it that, that was worth something. And, may, and it's probably still not, you know, there's no, you know, like nothing I do is going to really make me understand. No, I mean, you know, we are who we are. And as much as we try to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, clearly we can only imagine we can't experience that for them. But I'm curious what values changed after having been in that play. There's so many questions I want to ask about this, but that's going to be my first one. Well, coming from the military. So I spent, you know, 16 years, 15, 16 years in the military or in the federal agencies that, that were very much um, saturated with military. You are in a mixing pot like nowhere else in this country. Um, everyone is from everywhere. And you think to yourself something as a, as a kid from the Midwest, uh, the, the argument like, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not bigoted. I'm not prejudiced because I've got like more brown friends than I could even count or imagine right now. I've served with them and, and I love them. And I've ran out into the streets to, to, to drag them back, you know, when they were wounded. It doesn't count. 
because that is not their culture. You're not, we, you are in the military culture. Everyone's wearing green. Every, there's no class system. It's a meritocracy. Everyone's rank is based on how long they've been in and how good they are. And yeah, I'm not saying that, that it doesn't exist in, in ways and that there's a, a racial influence in the military. Of course there is, and they're still working that out. And there's a, there's a gender disparity in the, in the, in the military with how women are treated versus men. There's a lot of this, but they're working on it and they're figuring it out. And it's weird because you think oh, military, you know, all these fascists and their uniforms and, you know, the generals and, and uh, conservatives or something, they're kind of like on the, the front line of figuring out how to make it work because they just don't have time for BS. One of my best friends that I served with in Iraq back when we were 23 years old is still uh, still in and he's an officer now. He's a commander of an infantry company and he cannot allow any room for anyone in that unit to undermine the lethality. It's a Marine infantry unit. Their, their job is to be lethal. Their, their job is to locate, mm. close with, and destroy the enemy, period. Wow. Anything that goes against that is <laughs> undermining its lethality. So if he has Marines in there that have a problem with a queer Marine, he, he has to squash that immediately. Mm -hmm. And then now all these Marines are, are forced to figure out why their commander, who they respect, who's a war hero, who's decorated, doesn't agree with them or doesn't align himself with their conservative views. And now they're thinking, oh, I have to make changes so that I can be a better, you know, and this is kind of messed up, but, you know, you have to speak their language and the Marines just want to, you know, I, I want to be the best killer I can be, sir, you know, whatever it is. So yeah. they're, they're figuring out like, how is this not making me good at my job? Oh, so now you're, you're, you're proposing questions that regular Americans that don't leave their little Midwestern, you know, suburban town don't get thrown at them ever. So anyway, going, going back to what I was saying about the play is that, my relationship to people of color uh, in the military didn't, to, as far as I'm concerned, didn't count. Those, those were Marines. Those were corporals and sergeants and lieutenants, and that's it. They weren't, you know, uh, my black lieutenant or my, you know, my Mexican sergeant. It was that we were just Marines, and that's all that really mattered. We weren't going to each other's houses for Christmas. Now, me coming into that play and all of a sudden being embedded with people where they're really digging deep and and talking about how people that look like me and act like me and have done the things that I do have made their lives harder and um, more difficult before I was even alive. And then me sitting in that room gave me a, a perspective that I am privileged to have. Like they, they allow me to understand something. And most people will never be in that room for as long as we were having the conversations that we were every day for eight hours a day for, you know, two straight months, you know, the, what I'm struck by is your description of the military mm -hmm. and how, you know, there's, there's not room for, you know, racism mm -hmm. or um, heterosexism or all these things because it makes a unit less lethal. And I have this sort of image of, you know, the military as a very structured culture and mm -hmm. it just feels like, even the, even your belief system has to be structured. That's right. There's no deviation because that does take away from what you're there to do. Yeah. And would, and it, would that be an accurate sort of description? Yeah. I mean, 
Marines, soldiers, whoever, they, they still go home at the end of the day and they're exactly who they were before mm-hmm. they went in there. But at least inside that uh, little, like uh, its own little micro universe, yeah. that, that's how it is. I mean, it really comes down to um, your job is either to support the infantrymen. And if you're not doing that well, we got to figure out why. Oh, it's because you're trying to, you're having all sorts of social issues and this isn't a social uh, environment. It's a professional environment. Or your job is to kill the enemy. And those things are really getting in the way because you can't mm-hmm. have 14 teenagers with machine guns uh, that are at war with each other also charging up that hill. Right. Uh, I well, like the-, the way that you described that, though, because I'd never really thought of it as a profession. And when you put it in that way, I'm thinking, you know, we're a group of professionals at my office and there are things that I would never say or do in that office. And yet I would hope that I would never say it in my private life either, but let's just say, right. When I go home, it's going to be different because I'm not being professional. I don't have to be that way. So that I had never really considered that. Samaya, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were going to say something. No, it's interesting. It's as if your morals and values are no longer individualistic. They're more collectivistic. You guys think as one, you are one, you are one family, you protect each other, you are brothers and sisters. And that's all that matters, right? Is everything else is kind of like extraneous or sort of bullshit. Like none of that, all the extra stuff matters. It's just you being bonded with your brothers and sisters out there. Cause at the end of the day, you got each other's backs. It's true. And you're, you're, you're taking your cues from each other and literally the cues, orders, whatever you, you want to think about it. You, you really put all of your faith. It's like a religion in a way, you know, the guy with that one more stripe than you on, on his shirt has got that because he knows more than you. He's better than you. He's more trained than you. And he also is responsible for you. So you have to trust him. It doesn't always work that way, but in general, that's the way it is. And, and here's a, an ethical dilemma that it wasn't even the ethical dilemma that you would think it was. The first time that I got into a firefight, uh, I, I got hit by a suicide bomber. I crawled out of my burning Humvee. Um, and we'll start with the first injury. A man killed himself to try and kill me. Um, that's something that, that you know, you'll store in your body. There's, um, and, then, and then I, I kind of sat um, outside my job. I was dazed for a while. And I saw this, this light flashing at me from above on a rooftop. And it looked like a pretty star. It was just flashing, flashing. And I couldn't hear anything because my ears got blown out. And I'm just staring through this cloud of smoke at this flashing star. And I can't figure out what it is. Then the sound of the rounds start kind of increasing in volume. And I realize I'm looking at the muzzle flash of an AK-47. So I get down for cover and let the rounds pass over my head. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for the guy with one more stripe than me to come over and give me permission to shoot at the guy who's trying to kill me. And I sat there by myself next to this burning Humvee for I, who knows. I mean, it might've just been a minute or 30 yeah. seconds, but I kind of, in we were trained to, you know, you don't just start shooting your rifle because you're the military, you go to the range and they'll tell you when you're allowed to shoot and the target right. comes up, you shoot the target. You only shoot this many rounds. Right. And here now I'm in a real world situation. There's a person trying to kill me on a rooftop, shooting a machine gun at me the bullets are bouncing off the the roof of my Hummer that I'm crouched behind. And I'm waiting for somebody to give me permission because I don't want to break the the trust 
um, that, that we've all developed that belief system is that, that somebody is going to tell me what to do until all of a sudden logic kind of clicks in and says like, no one is here. I am, it, you know, it is my job to make decisions now. And then you become your own human in that moment. Wow. And, you know, I, I got up and I pointed my rifle at that flash and I shot at it until it went away. And that brings me to how did your values change in the military? And then what did that do when you came back home? You know, that incident was 17 years ago, uh, 16 years ago. And um, I'm, I'm a writer and an artist and I write about war. Yeah. And so essentially my entire life since has been a meditation on that moment. And, uh, and more happened to compound and make that knot a little bit more complicated and untieable throughout all of the rest of my service. And I did four more tours in Afghanistan and my level of involvement got a little bit more diabolical uh, as I became an intelligence officer. And my job was to, you know, the, the special operations guys and just wake up and say like, Hey, you guys want to go after that bin Laden guy today? Oh yeah, sure. Is that still on the list of things to do? And then they just go, go, they just go out there and get him. Somebody has to find him. Somebody has to know how to find him. And my job was essentially to figure out, where a guy was not bin Laden didn't work on that but um where this this one guy was uh with this name that's doing this bad thing and then figure out everything about him and all of his friends and sit there and systematically turn mm. all of his people against them by feeding me information about his life and so i can figure out exactly where he is wow. and then we can go and either capture or kill him and um and that is uh that is groovy if you believe that what you're doing is absolutely necessary but at a certain point in my career i realized that we we're just kind of uh you cut the head off the snake it just grows back mm -hmm. and and then i and it's not that that is like an unwinnable situation it's when i realized that it was the perfect recipe for a demand for money for urinal cakes in the, the, the urinals in the little bathrooms on base, it, you're not just buying the, you know, the 50 cent urinal cake. It's coming in the plastic packaging, the wrapper, there's a machine in, you know, the Midwest that, that puts it in the blister pack. There's a company that makes the box. They have to ship it. There's a company that's making the boat. There's all the ship manifests and all these people in the, the logistical tail between that be, behind that one urinal cake is millions of dollars. And this is going on for 20 years. And I'm just, there just, giving away my uh, humanity. And I never cried for any of these people that we killed. Right. I was, I mean, they're not like good people, but they're just there, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, why not kill them? At the end of the day, I'm spending four months at a time hunting one person so that my buddies can go out and shoot them or put them in zip ties and put them in a detainee facility, which is again, going to cost more money. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh my God, the, the, it's not meant to be one. Uh, this thing's meant to go on forever and ever. And I'm, mm -hmm. and, and as much fun as it is to play war with your, you know, cool special ops friends, that's not what I want to do with my life. Uh, my whole existence revolved around ending other people. And, you know, that's how your performance evaluation at the end of the, you know, quarter comes out. And it's like, how many people died because you did a good job? And if it wasn't a lot, then you weren't really that good and you don't get promoted. I mean, it's just, it's a weird thing. 
we're talking about values to all of a sudden you're trying to figure out what your value is as a professional. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to do a good job. Right. Everyone wants to be appreciated for the work they do, especially when half of your life is spent overseas in danger. You want somebody to say like, Hey, you're, it's, it's worth it. You're doing a good job. We all like you here. And, and that's your value, but you're, you're doing it by ending the lives of other people. And then whatever moral or ethical gymnastics that you have to do in your own heart and mind for that being a you know, good Catholic boy from the Midwest, which was easier back, you know, in World War II, you, you know, go, you know, fight the good fight and, you know, and keep, you know, keep it the way it is because we can't have Nazis and we can't, you know, like, cool. Then it changed over time and we ended up in a different situation and now it's just a, a business, you know, and it was a business back then in World War II too. Right. How did you deal with the internal conflict of that? Just exactly what you described. How did you cope with all that? Well, I mean, I'm an American male from the Midwest, you know, I put my <laughs> shoes on and went to work, you know, and you get around your buddies. And one of the things that if I'm going to be completely frank and honest with you guys and kind of out myself here, I, I was in a unit that, that sustained severe casualties more than any other unit in the 20 years of the war in one tour. Some units over time sustained more casualties than mine, but in one tour in the summer in 2005, 48 of my friends got killed. Um, and we were all generally from the same place because we were a reserve Marine Infantry Battalion. So you think about, you know, 48 young men from one geographic area, every pizza shop, fire department, you know, security desk at a hotel or, or police station or whatever, somebody knew somebody or somebody lost an employee, somebody died, somebody's wife, husband, or not wife, but uh, cousin, husband, brother, uh, somebody was affected by it. And um, uh, I, four of the guys in my platoon got killed. Many of the guys in my platoon got wounded, including me. We went on to get in more firefights and, and, and more action and more people died and more terrible ways. And it, it, it continued as a 23 year old boy who still believes that what he's doing is exactly what, like what grandpa did in, in, in the great, you know, in world war two, I'm, I'm taking, I'm taking notes. I, I have a tally and I'm figuring out exactly how many, how many of those people I need to kill to make up for each one of my friends that got killed. And now I'm dedicating my life. I'm, I've essentially radicalized myself to getting better and better at killing these people. And that's exactly what they want. Uh, you know, the, the Department of Defense couldn't be happier to have a good Marine like that. That's like, tell me, you know, let me train me more mm-hmm. so I can get better at doing this thing and keep sending me over there. Mm-hmm. And we used to call it a soul jar, you know, and uh, and say like, I'm, I'm going back, you know, and um, I haven't, my soul jar isn't full yet, right? I'm collecting souls. Mm-hmm. So I want it, I want that jar to be filled. You know, I needed to have at least 48, 48 in there because I lost 48 guys. But then 15 years later, I've lost count in the hundreds. And I still, you know, I got to do, I got to do better, you know, and it feels better. You get those, those senior guys like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing one for the boys, you know, 
they'd be proud of me right now. I guarantee you that my dead friends wish that I was spending my life um, doing something a lot more beautiful than going back to those countries, which should be beautiful countries, but they aren't because we don't allow them to be. And, uh, and wasting our life force, uh, hurting people and undermining the civility of their own society, you know, as backwards ethically and value wise as they can be at times, um, as we see what's happening in Afghanistan right now with the Taliban and their influence, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, but there's this, this, um, this very immature and I don't care how smart we are. It's this very immature, um, need for retribution. It's not very controlled either. The venom to lash back out has to be a controlled venom and, and we never got that right. So we just go out there and, and get heavy. That's incredible to me. And exactly what I was, exactly one of the reasons I wanted to have you on stand because your experience has been so different. And I, I see it from my perspective as a civilian, never having been to war, never you know, been in the military or anything like that. You know, I see it as a as a place of sort of this soulless, you know, you talk about your soul jar. And yet from my perspective, it seems like it would be empty because your soul's not there. Did it ever feel like the soul jar got filled up? No, it can never get filled. Um, that's the whole that's the whole trick. Every, you know, first of all. You can't collect a soul, but let's just pretend that that uh, let's entertain my hubris for a second and say that say that I did the first one you put in there. It's a deficit. Mm -hmm. And the more you put in there, the bigger the jar gets. And it's mm -hmm. just it doesn't you, you don't fix it. You um, you exacerbate the problem. And it started with empathy at the very beginning when you were dragging your 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 friend who you loved out of some street trying to figure out if he was alive or not. And he's not alive. Mm -hmm. And, and whatever hate that is deposited in your heart in that moment is, um, is the same hate that killed him in the first place. And I do believe, and not to get all woo on you guys, but I do believe that that you go into that environment with that in your heart. If you go in that part, that, that environment and it's, it's coming, it's being projected towards you it is like a self licking ice cream cone and it just continues to, to uh, rotate and it doesn't have an end. It doesn't have a beginning. It just gets bigger. So yeah, every, every soul that if you could put a soul in a jar, uh, it just makes the jar bigger. It makes it worse every time. So it's, there's no way to fill it. Stan, thanks for your incredible insights and your stories. This has been amazing. We've decided to go ahead and, break this up into two episodes. This is the end of episode one of two, although it's episode 31. And in two weeks, we'll have episode 32. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to this podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <music>